Holy Spirit, take us and do a good work in us. That's our desire this morning as we enjoy God's word together. I would like to ask you, if you would please, to take your Bible and join me in what book, possibly? The book of Galatians. Yes, this is a your opportunity to say that one more time next Sunday, and then we're going to be off in new directions. So, so we are we are close to wrapping things up. Galatians chapter six in the New Testament. If you need a Bible this morning, maybe you got out without your Bible today, we can help you. Uh, just just raise your hand, and we'll be glad to share a copy of God's Word with you. Also, there's this little note page in your bulletin. Would encourage you to grab hold of that as well. And, and, and church family, most of us are familiar with Murphy's Law, aren't we? Yeah. Uh, simply stated, it says, if anything can go wrong, it will, right? That's, that's Murphy's Law. And there are many variations and applications for this, this law. If anything can go wrong, it will, and it will go wrong at the most inopportune time, and it will be your fault, and everyone will know it, right? Or in Murphy's Law, if there is a possibility of several things going wrong, the one that will cause the most damage will be the one to go wrong, Murphy's Law. A shortcut to the lo- is the longest distance between two points. That has worked out for me more than once. Interchangeable parts never are. A tool dropped while, guys, you'll appreciate this, a tool dropped while working on the car will roll to the exact center under the car. That's Murphy's Law. The chance of the buttered side of the bread falling face down is directly proportional to the cost of the carpet. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. When a broken item is demonstrated to the repairman, it will what? It'll work perfectly. Of course it does. Murphy's Law. The other line always moves... Faster. It doesn't matter which line you choose, it'll be the. Yeah. Yeah. You will always find something in the last place you look. No, it is never in the last place you look. It's in the first place you look but didn't find it the first time. That would be Murphy at work. Anytime you put an item in a safe place, (laughs) it will never be seen again. Has that happened to you? Yes. Murphy's working. Your best golf shots always occur when playing alone. Paper is always strongest at the perforation. Did you ever notice that on those forms where you tear off? It it always is strongest there. Traffic is inversely proportional to how late you are. Yes, Murphy's Law. You will always find an easy way to do a thing after you're finished doing it, of course. And a knowledge of Murphy's Law is absolutely no help in any situation. Well, there are hundreds of these laws, and you can go on the Internet and find them. Silly, funny, occasionally true, um, just kind of tongue-in-cheek laws. And, and we, we understand those. But, of course, we also know, church family, that there are in our world other laws that are not silly. They're not funny. They are laws of science. They are laws of physics that govern our created world and really without which we would not be able to know or have the life that we do. Laws of motion, laws of time and mass, laws uh, related to gravity, thermodynamics, electromagnetics, photonics, laws in chemistry and in radiation and, and so forth. We count on these laws being in place and remaining constant even if we're not consciously aware of them or don't understand them We count on them. 
And we know that all of these laws of, of nature and science have their origin in the God who made them up, who, who put them in place. Immutable, unchangeable laws that, that govern his creation to, to give it order, to give it form, to give it functionality. So that we, we not only have a place where we can uh, live and be sustained, but we have a place where we can thrive because it operates. Our world operates so reliably in conformity to God's laws. This morning, in our soon-to-come-to-an-end study of the New Testament letter of Galatians, as I said, this is our next-to-last morning here. We'll be done next Sunday. As we join up with chapter 6, we look at verses 7 to 10. We're going to be challenged this morning by one of God's most basic, most fundamental, immutable laws. It is a law that operates inexorably in the realm of nature, and it operates just as unchangeably and reliably in the spiritual realm as well. And it is the law of sowing and reaping. And in your life and in mine, as well as in the life of every other person in the world, we are bound to this divine law, the law of sowing and reaping. It's verses 7 to 10 of chapter 6. I'm going to read these verses for us and invite you to follow along. Paul writes to his friends in Galatia, and he says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And because the Holy Spirit is the author of these words, we would just call upon him now, church family, and and ask him to take this word and bring it to life for us. We don't want to be hearers this morning only. We want to be doers of the word, yes? And so we ask this of you, Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, and Holy Spirit. Okay, so Paul, under the superintending direction of the Holy Spirit, has delivered his main thesis to the Galatians and to us on every page and in many, many of the verses of this letter. And what is the main thesis, the main point of the book of Galatians? Well, it's this right here, isn't it? It's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That is the message of the book of Galatians. And if you have been with us, you have to know that. And, and my question to you is, do you believe it? Do you believe it? Jesus plus nothing else equals everything in your life and in your eternity? Absolutely. In fact, I would suggest to you, it's kind of in a mathematical formulation, I would suggest to you that this is the ultimate law in the universe, isn't it? It trumps every other law. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. We, if we have a personal relationship with the living God through faith in Jesus Christ, The truth is our sin has been taken care of. Jesus has paid that sin debt for us and God has accepted the payment of Jesus on our behalf by raising his son from the dead and we cross over from death to life. 
Jesus plus nothing else, nothing I do equals an eternal relationship with him for me. That's the truth of the book of Galatians. We don't work our way into heaven. We don't earn God's love or acceptance by dutiful rule keeping or legalistic performance, which is what the false teachers were saying to the Galatians. We just trust Jesus. And that's enough. That's enough. Forgiveness of sin, salvation are given to us as a free gift as a result of our faith in Jesus. Do you remember this verse from chapter 2 when we were hanging out there? Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I wonder if we could just read this aloud together as a gift to the Lord, as a, as a statement of our own conviction this morning. Let's do it together. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you believe that? Amen. Well, Paul then takes that truth, and, and then in the last two chapters of his letter, as we've been learning, he, he elaborates on this, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, uh, truth, by practically, practically applying it to various areas of our lives. He tells us, for example, in chapter 5 and verse 1, that because of the truth of Jesus plus nothing, we live truly free today, truly free before God. Not so that we can just do anything that we want to do since we've been forgiven, but we live truly free to love God and to love the Lord Jesus and to love others from that place of forgiveness. In chapter 5, verse 13 are these words. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only don't use your freedoms as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall what? Love your neighbors as yourselves. But we can't effectively or consistently do that in our own puny strength. We know that, and God knows that. And so he gives us his very own spirit, the Holy Spirit, to live inside of us, when our faith is in Jesus, and as we determine to walk by the Spirit, verse 16 of chapter 5, and be led by the Spirit, verse 18, and live in and keep in step with the Holy Spirit, verse 25, then we really can live free and we really can love others well. These are places that we've been sharing together. In 526, by the power of the Spirit, we're able to kill the pride within us that would keep us from seeing the needs of others and and caring for them and loving them well. And in the opening verses of chapter 6, last time we were together, the Holy Spirit enables us to pick up and carry a brother or a sister who has been tripped up by some entangling sin in their life. So very practical stuff to help us live well for Jesus. That's what we've been getting in the last chapter and a half. Now Paul is going to offer one more practical exhortation and it comes to us in the form of God's timeless, immutable, unchangeable law. The law that none of us can ignore, as you see it there on your note page. We're all bound to this law. As we said earlier, every person in the world is bound to this law. Paul states it for us in verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows... That will he also reap. The law of sowing and reaping. 
God has written this law into all of life, into both the physical world that we live in as well as the moral, spiritual world that we all share together as well. Since we don't live, though, in an agrarian society like virtually everybody used to, a farming kind of a culture, we probably don't use this expression a great deal. We will probably say cause and effect. Everything has a cause, and, 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 and the cause will have an effect. But even more earthy, we're more familiar with this phrase, what goes around comes around, right? That's just another way of saying the law of sowing and reaping, right? Right? That's our modern twist on this immutable law. What goes around comes around. But we're not so far removed from the law that Paul gives us here, whatever one sows, that will he also reap, that we can't make the connections. Even though we're not into to farming and we don't live on farms, we can make the connection. We get it. If a farmer wants a harvest, he has to do what? Well, he has to sow the seed. Right, we get that. If he doesn't, there's not going to be a harvest. And, and in fact, it is the farmer who is going to determine the kind of harvest that he will have. And he'll determine that by the kind of seed that he sows, by the quality of that seed that he sows, and also by how much of the seed that he sows. This isn't rocket science. We know this. If he sows wheat seed, he's going to get what? He's going to get wheat. He shouldn't expect to get barley or corn if he sows wheat. If you plant tomato seeds in your box garden at your home, you should not expect jalapeno peppers to, to pop up out of your box garden, right? You sowed tomato seeds, that's what you're going to get. And a, and a seed of good quality, we know, will produce a good quality crop. You sow a poor seed, and you can forget about having a great result. And if the farmer is generous in the way that he sows, he puts in lots of seed in the ground, well, then he can look for a plentiful harvest. But if he sows sparingly, then his harvest is going to be uh, reflecting that. It will be a, spare, a sparse harvest. It's the law of sowing and reaping. This same law, says the Holy Spirit here to us, operates in the moral and the spiritual world just like it does in the physical world. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. It's not the harvester who decides what the crop will be like. It's the one who is doing the sowing. And just as it is in the farmer's field, so it is in the spiritual realm. The kind of harvest that will be realized is going to be defined by the kind of seed that we sow, by the quality of that seed, and by how much of it gets sown. And Paul's going to explain that more fully in the next verse, in verse 8. But to place maximum force upon the law of God, he prefaces it with this sober warning. He says, do not be deceived. God is not what? God is not mocked. Now, that word deceived that Paul uses here, it means to be led astray. And and Paul probably has two thoughts in mind here as he chooses this word. He is, he is once again warning his Galatian friends, these baby Christians, not to be duped by those smooth-talking Judaizers, those false teachers who want to turn the true gospel of salvation by grace through faith into Jesus, in Jesus into a salvation by one's own good performance and rule-keeping. And so he's warning them, don't be deceived by those false teachers. But then he also says, as well, 
Don't take the grace and the forgiveness of God that you have received through faith in Jesus and think that you can just go out and and sin up a storm and live like the world lives and not pay a consequence for that. Don't be deceived by the false teachers. Don't be deceived by, don't deceive yourself either because God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that is what they will reap. It's the law of God. Mocked. It's a word that Paul borrows uh, here. It's actually the word for nose. Your nose, literally your nose. And it literally means here to turn up your nose. Don't turn up your nose at God, Paul says. That's exactly what he says. It pictures somebody who is proud and, and self-assured. They're thinking they're all that. And, and they, sme- they, they kind of sneer and, and maybe treat with contempt. And Paul is saying, listen. Listen, Galatian brothers and sisters, God has made an immutable law that nobody gets to ignore. You will not thumb your nose at him and live like you want. It doesn't work like that with him. So don't be fooled by others and don't fool yourself. Don't mock God. Each of us will reap what we what sow, right? And then in verse 8, Paul explains what this means in the lives of his friends and in his own life as well. Verse 8, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Paul takes us now once back, once more back into the themes of our flesh and the person of the Holy Spirit, themes that he has already had us working with uh, toward the latter half of chapter 5 especially verses 16 to 25 of that chapter. There you might recall in verse 17 of chapter 5, Paul told us that our lives are are really a combat zone. They're, They're a battleground as our flesh and the Holy Spirit war against one another. If you look back, you will see those words. They fight against each other, our flesh and the Holy Spirit. Well, here Paul changes the word picture from the conflict in in a battlefield kind of an arena, now our lives in Jesus are likened to a farm. And our flesh and the Holy Spirit are two fields that you and I can sow seed in. The harvest we reap depends entirely upon which field we sow in and what kind of seed we sow. Since this word flesh has already come up for us several times in previous weeks. We, we, we know what Paul is thinking about. Our flesh is our old sin nature, the sin nature that each of us were born with. We received it from our parents who received it from their parents. We're born with a sin nature. We all understand that. When we, when we put our full faith and trust in Jesus, though, our faith in him, Jesus delivers a fatal blow to our sin nature. It's going to die, but it's not dead yet, is it? It's been dealt a fatal blow, but it fights for breath, our sin nature. It fights to express itself, even though we are followers of Jesus, we're seeking to live for him, and we long for that old sin nature to be dead, but, but, but it doesn't happen in this life. It's been severely wounded, it's been weakened, but every day, our sin nature let it, lets us know that it is there and it seeks to express itself in a variety of different ways. 
And since Paul is writing Christians here, he is, he is saying that the one who sows in the field of the flesh is giving in to their sin nature and pandering to its desires instead of looking to the Holy Spirit to overcome those desires. Every time we allow ourselves to, for example, harbor a grudge or strategize uh, some form of revenge because someone has, has hurt us or we wallow in self-pity or we entertain impure thoughts of someone else, we are sowing to the flesh. Every time we decide to hang with company that we know is going to make sinful choices and we'll be with them and we won't be able to resist the peer pressure and we know we're going to end up going along with them, when we do that, we are what? We're sowing to the flesh. Every time we look the other way when we could show compassion to someone or when we neglect prayer or time in the word but we'll make time to visit sites on the internet that we have no business being on, we are sowing to the flesh. In fact, Paul gives us a whole storefront of the seeds of the flesh back up in chapter 5 in verses 19 and 20. Do you remember these from a couple of weeks ago? I hate reading this list. Kind of feel like I need a bath after I do so, but here it is. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like that. All of this, Paul would say, is sowing, sowing, sowing in the field of the flesh. And the only harvest, he says, that is reaped from sowing such seed, according to verse 8, the only harvest that will ever be realized is what harvest? A harvest of, what's the bottom word? A harvest of corruption. The word that Paul uses here is the Greek word for food that is rotting. So get that picture in your mind. Not long ago, uh, Lisa and I were leaving a restaurant and we were walking behind the restaurant which had a large commercial dumpster in the, in the back and we were getting, going to our car and the wind was just right and man, that wind was blowing from that dumpster towards us and whoa, man, what a smell. That powerful stench hit, hit us both and, and we just like kind of were taken back by that. Something that was once good and was being served to people in the restaurant was now in the dumpster and it was rotting. It was corrupted. And that is what sin, working through the flesh in a Christian's life, that's what it does. It's a very powerful word picture. It does this in every person's life, not just the Christian's life, every person's life, because the law of sowing and reaping is universal. But here, Christians are the ones who are in view. Sin choices, sin seed sown yields a corrupt harvest of heartaches, wounds, shame, pain for ourselves and because sin is messy, also corruption that affects the lives of other people around us. Because the law of sowing and reaping is immutable, we're not exempt right now, brother, sister, and Jesus, from experiencing the rotting consequences of sowing to the flesh. You're not immune. I'm not immune. The law can't be ignored. Now, we will never know, and praise God that this is true, we will never know the ultimate consequences of our sin if we're in Jesus Christ. 
which is separation from God and an eternal judgment in a place called hell, we will never know that because Jesus bore all of that for us, didn't he? He took all that corruption upon himself as he hung on the cross for us. But many a Christian has or is right now reaping the earthly harvest of heartaches and wounds and shame and pain, uh, the, 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 the results of sin seeds that were sown, sown in pride, sown out of rationalization in a moment, sown in desperation, maybe sown in a, in a time of foolishness. And we all have, if we're honest, we all have firsthand experience as Christians with this immutable law. We've all sown these seeds and experienced the consequences. We know about this harvest. And so Paul is pleading with his friends. Oh, my dear Galatian brothers and sisters, do not be deceived and do not buy into to the, the sin-driven legalism of the Judaizers. And, 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 and if you do that, you're just going to sow seeds of pride and self-righteous sufficiency, and, and that's never going to save you. And, and don't lie to yourself and think that Jesus paid my sin debt for me so I can just live any old way I want to uh, because you're going to experience the consequences of a choice like that, seed sowing of that kind. You sow to your flesh, you're going to reap corruption. That's the law. But there is another way. It's the second part of verse 8. The one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap what? Eternal life. Now here Paul has in view one who loves Jesus and is preoccupied with those things that flow out of the heart of God and the character of Jesus. To sow to the Spirit is the same as what we have been talking about in chapter 5. Verse 16, it means to walk by the Spirit. In verse 18, it means to be led by the Spirit. In verse 25, it means to live by the Spirit and to keep in step with the Holy Spirit. When we are sowing to the Holy Spirit, we are admitting that we can't live this life on our own. We can't do it in our own strength or our own power, by our own skill, by our own ability. And so we confess we are in desperate need of you, Holy Spirit of God, Live, your, uh, live a God-honoring life out of me. I'm asking you to bear fruit out through me. I will simply be the vehicle that you use. And what is the fruit? Well, we looked at that back in chapter 5 as well, verses 22 and 23. Do you remember this? How about we read these off the... Let's just read this list right off the screen together. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy... Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. You don't make a law against these kinds of things. They don't need a law, do they? They're a law unto themselves. And really, this is, this is nothing less than the character of Jesus. And we walk by, and as we are led by, and as we live by, and as we walk in step with the Spirit, this is the good harvest. Jesus living out through you, living out through me, living out through us collectively here at IBC. To sow to the Holy Spirit looks like this, for example, Galatians, or Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, have you been raised with Christ? Have you? Through faith in Jesus? Yes, you've been raised up with him. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above. That would be the same as sowing to 
the Spirit, wouldn't it? Not on the things of the earth. That would be sowing to the flesh. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. We just quoted it together a few moments ago. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. Well, here is the same thought. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ. When our longings, when our affections are focused on the things that delight the heart of Jesus, that delight the heart of our Heavenly Father, the things that he has made known to us through his word, and we're doing those things, we are sowing to the Spirit. And sowing to the Spirit also looks like this. Another passage, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. These are words that you're familiar with, I'm sure. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as what? Living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. Ah, that would be sowing to the flesh. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Sowing to the Spirit. Dying to self, sowing to the Spirit. Living to our Savior. That was the song we just sang uh, before we started our time in the Word. Verse 8 says that the one who does this, who sows to the Spirit, will from the Spirit reap what? will reap eternal life. Paul's not saying that if we do all the good stuff that God likes and we steer clear of all the bad stuff that he hates, that we get to have eternal life. He's not saying that, is he? He's not saying that. In fact, this whole letter has been his assault on that deadly false idea. What Paul is saying here is that when we sow the good seed, the seed of the Spirit, the, the things that, that we, just, we just read off together, that list of nine from, from chapter five, the harvest that results, what we will reap is the joy and the blessing that comes to the one who is in, a ter- in an eternal living relationship with God. Every Christian, you, me, we begin participating in eternal life the moment we trust Jesus. Do you believe that? You stepped into eternal life the day that you asked Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. So we've started, we've all started living eternal life. That happened to you, that happened to me, that wonderful moment in time. And that life eternal that we entered into is a life of unshakable joy. It is a life of settled peace and security. It's a life of blessing to us. Uh, And it brings to us a true sense of fulfillment. We have a purpose. We have a direction. We have a future. When we're walking by the Spirit, when we're being led by the Spirit, when we're living by and keeping in step with the Spirit, we are living eternal life. Not in the fullest measure that we will one day, but even now some of its quality is ours to reap. Life eternal. Peace, joy, security, fulfillment. We get to experience that right now. When we sow to the flesh, we don't lose eternal life, do we? What? Do we? No, we don't. We don't lose eternal life as a believer in Jesus, but we do lose the joy, and we lose the peace, and we lose the fulfillment, and we lose the blessing, but we don't lose eternal life. But... Sin steals those 
aspects of eternal life from us in that moment. You might recall the life of the Old Testament character David here. After a season of, of devastating sin in his life, incredibly simple choices that he had made, sowing to his flesh in some horrible ways, he finally comes to his senses and he prays a prayer of confession to the Lord in Psalm 51. And his cry to God in that moment of confession is not, God, restore to me my salvation. That's not what he says. That's not what he prays. Do you know what he prays? He says, Heavenly Father, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Because that's what he lost when he sowed seeds of sin to his flesh. So Paul wants this for these believers in Galatia. And this is what the Holy Spirit wants for you and me. He wants us to be sowing the seeds to the Spirit that will result in the joy and the peace and the fulfillment and the blessing. For the one who sows to his own flesh, again, will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. It is a truly immutable law. And anybody who thinks that they can live outside of the boundaries of this law is fooling themselves. It cannot happen. True? It can't happen. And and yet each of us knows right now in your circle of relationships, my guess is that you know at least one person, and some of them could be Christians right now, who, who are trying to convince themselves that this law doesn't apply to them. And you can just see the train wreck about to happen, can't you? I know of this. I see this in friends, in some some relationships that I have. Well, if you flip your note page over then, Paul is going to take, is going to make two appeals to us for the sake of these friends as he applies this law of sowing and reaping to them. In verse 9 he says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So Paul is here again alluding back to this farming analogy uh, that we're not super familiar with, but he is saying uh, what we already know. Fellow Christian, just like the farmer who plants his good quality seed in abundance, he has to wait. He has to wait for it to germinate in the soil. He has to wait for it to take root and to come into full maturity over time. Just like that farmer has to wait for the, the harvest, so too the harvest of good that you sow to the Spirit, will in good time produce a harvest. It will produce a good crop. So don't give up. That's that's verse 9. It's a timely exhortation in our day of instant gratification and microwave dinners and all that stuff where we we want it right now, don't we? And Paul is saying, look, look, don't give up. The harvest will come Hang in there. And he's saying that to the first century Galatians, but he's saying it to us here in 21st century Idlewild. And when Paul wrote this word good here in verse 9, he used a a definite article that unfortunately doesn't show up in our English versions. He inserts the word the before the word good. The good, which lets us know that Paul is thinking about a specific good or a particular kind of good in this verse. And let us not grow weary of doing the good. 
In this moment, he is more than likely taking us back up again one more time to chapter 5 and verses 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit. What's the, what's the good? Well, it's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and other things like that. Don't give up if you don't see immediate results from living out these virtues by the Spirit of God who lives in you. You have the promise of God. You will reap the harvest. Don't give up. That's the word. Because you do not know what that harvest might look like or when it will come. You just stay faithful. True story. His name was Fleming. He was a poor Scottish farmer. One day, while trying to make a living for his family, he heard a small child's cry coming from a nearby swampy bog. He dropped his tool and he ran to the bog and there, mired up to his waist in in black muck, was a terrified little boy screaming and struggling to free himself. And, And the farmer saved the lad from what would have certainly been a very slow and terrifying death. Well, the next day, a fancy carriage pulled up to Farmer Fleming's modest little cottage, his home, and an elegantly dressed nobleman stepped out and introduced himself as the father of the boy that Fleming had saved the day before. And he says, I want to repay you. You saved my son's life. I can't accept payment for that. I would have done that for anyone. Well, at that moment, the farmer's own son, who was fairly young, stepped into the doorway of the family cottage. The nobleman noticed that, and he said, Is that your boy? Yeah, that's my boy. I'd like to make you a deal. If you will let me take him, I will give him a good education. And if the lad is anything like his father... He'll grow up to be a man that you can be proud of. Well, and that's exactly what happened. In time, Farmer Fleming's son graduated uh, at the full expense of the nobleman, graduated from St. Mary's Medical School in London, and then went on to become known around the world as the esteemed Sir Alexander Fleming, the discoverer of penicillin. Years afterward, the nobleman's son, the same boy who had been rescued from the bog, who's now an adult, was stricken with pneumonia and on the verge of death. What saved that man? The penicillin. The penicillin. The name of the nobleman, Lord Randolph Churchill. His son's name? Winston Churchill, who would lead his country in World War II. You never know how the harvest is going to manifest itself. You just stay true to the good harvest. And let us not grow weary of doing the good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Often we're not going to know the harvest, brother, sister. Maybe not even in this lifetime at all, but we don't give up. Because the harvest will come. That is the promise. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. Paul writes another church, but he says exactly the same thing to them. He says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, sowing to the Spirit in your life. Why? 
knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in, what's the word? It's not going to be in vain. Don't give up. God has promised a harvest. Stay at it. If perhaps you, brother or sister, have been in a situation, maybe you're in a situation right now, you're in a relationship where you have been seeking to let the Spirit of God lead you and you have been determined to reflect the qualities of the Spirit that we read about in, in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, and, and there's been no tangible, observable fruit or benefit that has come from that, not one head of grain and not a single bud on the stem, the word here is... Don't give up. Keep on doing what you have been doing. Stay at it because the harvest will what? It's going to come. It's going to come. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with what? Perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and do what? Lose heart or give up. Jesus never gave up on us, did he? Never gave up on us. Went all the way to the cross. All the way to death for us. Paul says, do not give up on him. A good harvest will come. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep sowing the seed and the harvest will come. And then Paul wraps all this up with verse 10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do the good. There's that definite article there again. Let us do the good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is Paul's call to all of us to be attentive, to be on alert for the moment that we have an opportunity to sow the seed. Seed sowing moments, opportunities to love God and love Jesus by loving others inside and outside the church. That's what's in view here. Paul's talking about people inside our church family and those who are in the community and don't know Jesus. Seed sowing moments, they come along, Paul says, and we can miss them if we're not being attentive, if we're not looking for those opportunities, determined to seize the moment to sow to the Spirit. We can miss those moments and thus miss the harvest. As we close, let me put a finer point on this since we could, this is a really broad thought in the moment. Let me just take this down to a very specific point. Let's just take the one fruit, the one seed out of Galatians 5.22, the, the, the fruit of kindness, the seed of kindness. And let's just think about how being attentive to sow that one seed might have the power to communicate love and care and possibly change a person's life even. This story comes out of a, a Saturn car dealership. True story. Saturn car dealership of all places. This guy walks into the dealership one day and he says, I'm looking for a car for my wife. It's going to be her dream car and I want it to be a surprise. Well, the sales rep asks him, why are you doing this for her in this moment? And the man proceeds to pour out his story. He says, my wife was diagnosed with breast cancer and, 
and had to have a double mastectomy. And this Friday will be the fifth anniversary of that surgery. And and if she is cancer-free on Friday, then her doctors say that she can know that the threat is gone. And if she is cancer-free, I'm coming straight over here from the doctor's office, and I am going to buy her dream car. I know which one it is. It's that white one right over there. Well, that Friday the doctor reveal the visit to the doctor reveals that she is indeed cancer free and so he heads straight for the dealership unbeknownst to his wife when they arrive there he figures he's just going to go in meet with the salesman and sign the papers they pull up they walk into the showroom and without having told the husband and having absolutely no idea of how the doctor's visit has gone this salesman has had every other car in the showroom taken out. There are balloons and there are streamers everywhere. And sitting on the turntable in the middle of this huge showroom with a giant bow around this white car. On the front of the car is a sign. Congratulations, Liz. Five cancer-free years. And, And all the salespeople come out and they, they gather, they circle the car, they circle the couple, and they start to apply. And she literally collapses into her husband's arms. Then everybody's asked to leave the showroom and go outside so that the two of them can have a few moments together. Now, do you think that in that moment, that lady felt cared for? Do you think she felt loved? Do you think she felt special? Do you think that she mattered? That she felt like she mattered? She certainly did matter to her husband. We would expect that. But a car salesman who already had the sale didn't have to do any of these things chose kindness. And this is how he chose to express it to this lady. Was the salesman a follower of Jesus? I don't know. I don't know. Whether he was or not, to me, he is an example of what not missing a seed-sowing moment in your life looks like. He had an opportunity, and this is how he chose to seize the moment. And so I would just ask us, putting a very fine point on, on where we could go with this, who in your circle brother, sister in Jesus, who in your circle today, this week, perhaps, needs to know that they matter. That they matter to you, and more importantly, that they matter to God. Who in your circle needs to know that? What undeserved, unexpected seed of kindness might you be able to sow and totally make this person's day or their month or, or their year? What seed might you sow to the Spirit and by that act reap a harvest of blessing for that person, maybe for a family as well as for yourself, and in the process make Jesus incredibly real? Jesus said the greatest commandment is this. Love the Lord your God 
with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And then make that love real by loving your neighbor as you love yourself. Who needs, who needs the seeds that you have to sow? It's worth thinking about. Let's pray together. Well, thank you, Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, for the challenge of this morning. Thank you for a a very earthy illustration from a farmer's field to help us grasp the truth of an immutable law, Lord, that you have made. We thank you for the warnings. We thank you for the encouragement. May we be determined to hang in there and sow the good seed, not give up. And may we be alert, attentive to the opportunities you bring into our life to sow the seed. We're trusting you for the harvest and all to your glory we ask it. And God's people said, amen and amen. Let's stand together, church family.